Lord, we are, first of all, this morning, I want to lift up a people group, Lord, uh, the people group this morning of the Nair people of India, a Hindu people of 7 million strong, uh, less than, uh, or 0.2% of which are Christian, Lord, we lift this people up to you and ask you to draw them to your name. Lord, we ask them, we ask you to send people to the far corners of the field, to this Nair people, people that can't be okay with staying here. Lord, we pray that you would send workers and that you would couple that with people that are burdened to get the, at some answers at who their creator is, where they can see the bankruptcy of the Hindu faith. Lord, we pray that you would stir in them an awakening, that you would open eyes of their hearts, that you would give them dreams and visions, and that those would intersect with people who are bringing the work to the far corners. Lord, we beg you to draw this people to you, the Nair people of India. Lord, also this morning we pray for another church in our community. We're thankful for the opportunity to lift up uh, Christ Community Church, Rick and Julie Prettyman. Uh, uh, Lord, I pray for Rick and Julie that they are enjoying you as a husband and wife, first and foremost. That you are blessing their marriage, that they are fueled by and governed by and energized by the gospel. Pray that you would guard Rick from the, uh, just the, the, the temptation and potential of moving into just a job and just showing up, that he would be fueled by his calling and by the Holy Spirit at work in him. Lord, we pray for those who are serving with him as fellow elders and, and deacons and teammates. Lord, we pray that you would give them a, a unity of purpose, uh, not a uniformity, but a unity of purpose so that they would advance through them, your kingdom would advance. Lord, we ask you to bless Christ Community Church. Give them good problems of seating space and parking space and uh, nursery space, Lord. We pray that you would grow uh, the kingdom through this uh, sister church in our community. And we're thankful for the chance to lift them up this morning. Lord, lastly, we pray that you would use these few minutes to open the eyes of our hearts yet again to the greatness of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Y'all stand, if you would, for the reading of God's word. From John chapter 14. Beginning in verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lord, speak to us through these powerful words. We beg this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Y'all have a seat. This is the sixth I am statement in the book of John. Each of these I am statements are declaration of deity. Jesus is very clearly saying, I am God. He is clearly making the statement that he's the promised Messiah, and his statements result in division faith, people want to stone him, people want to follow him, or people want to crucify him. Really stark responses. There's not a lot of middling responses to these declarations. Divisions, belief, scheming to murder him, and then ultimately his cross. And here on the night of his arrest, we're in John chapter 14. The Lord's Supper has just taken place. 
on the night of his, his arrest, he's declaring to be the way, the truth, and the life. This morning, I'm going to speak about some real people and real stuff. I think I do that most Sundays, but I'm going to be real specific about something in the next few minutes. I'm going to be speaking about one man in particular. His name is Friedrich Nietzsche. That's how you actually say his name. I thought it was Nietzsche. It's Nietzsche. Philosopher from the 1800s. I'll share his story here in a moment. I'm going to be speaking about some worldviews. I'm going to be speaking about the way we sort of interpret things. And I want all of those things, even my reference to this man, to be bathed in compassion. I catch myself sometimes speaking very passionately about something I can come across as condemning of anybody that doesn't see it my way, and I don't want to do that this morning. I want to speak lovingly, truthfully, and compassionately, even about this man, Friedrich Nietzsche. He's a German philosopher whose work was, has exerted a profound influence on modern intellectual history. I think you'll see how profound as our time continues this morning. He began his career as a classical philologist before turning to philosophy. He became the youngest person ever to hold the chair of classical philology at the University of Basel in 1869 at the age of 24. Nisha resigned in 1879 due to health problems that plagued him most of his life. He completed much of his core writing in the following decade. Here's some quotes from Friedrich Nietzsche. You have your way. I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, and the only way, it does not exist. Let that fill this space here for a minute. It does not exist. Another quote of his, this is the shorter one. There are no facts, only interpretations. No facts, only interpretations. There's a longer quote. I don't have a slide for this one, but you can maybe listen closely as best as possible, a little bit longer. Meaning and morality of one's life come from within oneself. Healthy, strong individuals seek self-expansion by experimenting and by living dangerously. That sounds kind of modern, actually. It sounds like something you might see on Facebook. Life consists of an infinite number of possibilities, and the healthy person explores as many of them as possible. Religions that teach pity, self-contempt, humility, self-restraint, and guilt are incorrect. The good life, he says, is ever-changing, challenging, devoid of regret, intense, creative, and risky. We'll come back to Friedrich over the course of the morning at a few little points, and then we'll finish uh, with the sort of the rest of the story of this man, Friedrich 
Nisha. But we're here to hear what the Lord's had to say. So let's spend the next few minutes considering I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to consider it in some ways. It's like three little micro-sermons, which if you know me, that's hard for me to do. So I'm going to do the best that I can to do three little micro-sermons in the next few minutes to where they're digestible and uh, linear and um, a way that you can follow. I have a few places I'd like for you to turn this morning, and I'll just kind of share. I'll tell you what those are, so you might have kind of, uh, if you're taking notes, you might have a, you go ahead and note these down if you would. Chapter 3 of John is the first place we're going to go, or excuse me, chapter 13. Uh, you can also jot down John chapter 18, we'll go in a moment, and Ephesians chapter 2. So there's not a, not a lot of stuff, but you may have those handy. But first of all, let's look at John chapter 13. It's just a few verses in front of where we are this morning. It's a conversation between our Lord and Peter. Actually, our Lord is speaking with all the disciples, but Peter has something to say, beginning in verse 33. Our Lord, on the night of his arrest, you know, at the, in the context of the supper and the, the moments afterwards, after the supper, he says, little children, verse 33, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's like Simon Peter didn't even hear those last two verses. Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? He's telling him to love one another, but he's stuck over there on verse 33. Where I am going, you cannot come. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him. Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Just think on this for a moment. They've left everything to follow him by this point for about three years. They've walked away from job, family, home. They've left, I mean, literally everything to follow him. And he's sharing with them. He's going somewhere they can't follow. Can you appreciate for a moment where Peter is going in this? Like, what are you you talking about, Jesus? We've officially cast our lot with you. We've put our hand to the plow. Where on earth are you going? This is mysterious and it's confusing. That same thought picks up in chapter 14. Let's look there, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. You can imagine he's speaking to this unrest that they're feeling that confusion let not your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I am going You know the way to where I am going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Can you feel his exasperation? Especially from, he's just the right guy. It's Thomas. We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? I think Thomas made a really great point that I want to spend the next few minutes on. We can't know the way of the Lord. Peter doesn't know the way of the Lord left to his own device. Thomas doesn't know the way of the Lord left to his own device. And neither do we. The Old Testament has a witness to this as well. 
Here's a few little windows. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. See, here's the problem. We don't know the way of the Lord, but we sure enough know a way, and it's called our way. And each of us, apart from Christ, have turned to his own way. Proverbs has two passages that are identical that say something very similar. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, and 21, verse 2 say, All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. You hear the contrast there? Ah, I, got, I got this. I got this. I got this way figured out. See, I have this thing called my way, and it's the right way, by the way, in case you've been wondering. The indictment against the nation of Israel at the end of the book of Judges is summarized as this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That should scare us to death. If the Lord were to say about Crosspoint Fellowship, man, those people, they do. Every one of them do what's right in their own eyes. That's, you understand that's a condemnation. Because our way is not the way. Our way is the wrong way. We may not know the Lord's way, but we sure enough know our way. Listen to this from Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. <gasps> you know, I was thinking this morning, um, I was thinking this morning, you know, sometimes... You know, you kind of have this thought on a Sunday morning, you want to start like real joyful stuff. You know, we have like some music blaring and worship team comes up and we sing the joy. This was this, this bit of a very sober morning. Because what we're dealing with this morning is the fortress of the lost heart of man. What makes it a fortress is it seems right to the man. But man, it's Gibraltar. It's like, uh, what are some, it's Alcatraz. You can't get in, you can't get out, unless you're like a Houdini or something, a special escape artist. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We don't know the way of the Lord, but we definitely have a way, and it seems right to us. So how can we know the way? We can join Thomas this morning and go, how can we know the way? Well, he makes it very easy for him. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is a beautiful encouragement, should be a beautiful encouragement to all of us if we're sitting here wondering, am I walking in the way that seems right to a man or am I walking in his way? This will encourage you. And verse 4 says, and you know the way to where I'm going. And you know the way to where I'm going. The point he's making here is that he is himself the way. In many ways, what he's saying to them, as Peter and Thomas are so confused and they're saying, how can we know the way, to your, to, 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 uh, the, the way you're going? We don't even know the destination. Uh, he said, you know the way to where I'm going. He's saying, you're on it. The day you left everything and followed me, you started on the journey of the way. You know the way because you're on it. That should be a real strong encouragement to everybody in this room. If you've cast your lot with Christ and you're following Christ, then you are on and in the way. This is a really neat little window into uh, the book of Acts. It's just kind of an, 
a little identity thing that if, if, if we ever had a name change as a church, this is what I would want to change it to. Acts chapter 9, verse 2 uh, actually says uh, this. Um, I'll start in verse 1 because it won't make any sense. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The way became such an identity for the people of God, they actually identified themselves as being the way. That'd be a cool name for a church. If we ever changed our name, maybe that's what we'd change it to. The way. I like that. Because he literally is the way. Then there's Nisha. You have your way. I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, and the only way, it does not exist. That is a sad, graphic, rebellious quote from Friedrich Nietzsche that stands in stark contrast to our Lord's declaration that I am the way. Okay, micro-sermon number one, done. Okay, you ready for micro-sermon number two? All right, truth. Turn to John chapter 18. Oh, it's hard to leave that alone. It's just that, but we'll do it. We'll do our best. We'll trust that that will be seed well sown. John chapter 18. We deal with truth. Here's where things might get a little bumpy. Okay, all right. Got some thumbs up from folks, okay, with a little bumpy ride. Okay, Pilate has a conversation with our Lord. Let's look in chapter 18, beginning in verse 33. Our Lord's been arrested by this point. We fast forward a few chapters, you know, from chapter 14 over here to chapter 18. And here in verse 33, it says, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Okay, it was sort of greasing the skids for a, for a, a, a question that's about to be asked. Okay, this is just context. We're climbing into this moment where Pilate is questioning our Lord. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? If you read what happens after that, there's no more dialogue. You imagine that big pregnant question? It doesn't say even, but the way I imagine it says, what even is truth? What even is truth? You're dismissed. Pilate goes back to his chambers. Our Lord goes back to being beaten. What even is truth? It's an ancient question. It's older than Pilate, and it starts with the ancient philosophers. It's an ancient question, and we live in a world that's still groping after it. And yet, I'm afraid, doesn't seem to be very fond of the notion of something called absolute truth. Things that used to be givens. Okay? Deal with this really compassionately. 
things that used to be given like the definition of marriage. There are people that love the Lord. There are people that are trying to pursue the Lord that deal with same-sex attraction. Wrestle with that. And some that are losing. But I believe that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it and will draw them through that. Okay? I want this moment as we deal with this thought of marriage being redefined for those who struggle with same-sex attraction that we bathe this moment in compassion. But at the same time, we also bathe it in truth. God made this thing called marriage, and it is absolute. And it is a man and a woman. It is a man and a woman. And we live in a world where that is up for grabs. If it's not convenient, then we'll just redefine it. We live in a world, too, where things that in the past have been givens, like your gender. Now, let me, too, let me address this also. There are some folks that have physical conditions where they are born with two genders, and they have to sort out. The parents and the physicians have to sort out which gender is this human being. That's, that is a very unique circumstance. I'm in this few moments going to compassionately speak to this problem, even to those who deal with something that's really probably pretty painful called gender dysmorphia. Speaking very passionately to those folks and also considering that God's grace is sufficient even in those circumstances. We want to very truthfully and plainly and absolutely say that God made man and God made women and that that is determined by our Lord in DNA. DNA. A lot of things that are up for grabs, and it seems in our context that there are no facts, only interpretation. Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche. No facts, only interpretation. Things that used to be pretty much a given are up for grabs. Rene Descartes was another philosopher who's often caricatured, and I probably have been guilty of caricaturing, and I'm going to caricature this morning again. I asked Evan's permission. Evan's my oldest, and she's a philosophy guru, so I asked her if I could pull this off, and she said, yeah, that's a fair summary. His statement of, I think, therefore I am. Okay, you've heard that statement before, Rene Descartes. Okay, I think, therefore I am. I want you to consider how profoundly that has impacted the way we think even now. I think, therefore, I am easily transitions into if I think it, then it is. You understand how, how close that is, how easily that can migrate? I think, therefore, I am can become I think it, therefore, it is. If I think it, then it is. It just is. If I think something is true, then it is true. If I think I'm a woman, despite all indications otherwise, Despite DNA that has the pairing of X and Y chromosomes, if I think I'm a woman, I'm a woman. That's the world we live in. And just to make sure, you know, that I want to, again, I want to also bathe this in compassion. Just to make sure this isn't a liberal notion. It's not, we're not talking about political leanings here. We're just liberal folks have these sort of what we might call delusional thoughts. Okay. 
ultra-conservatives can be guilty of the same thing. I think I won an election. I think I won an election, so therefore I did. All facts to the contrary. I think the 2020 election was stolen, therefore it was. Man, we're crossing both sides of the aisle with this idea. The world that we live in right now is governed by, in many ways, there are no facts, only interpretation. Yet God shows up and says that he is truth. He is truth. Jesus declared to be this truth. In Exodus chapter 34, our Lord showed his glory to Moses. And he identified his name, and it's a big name. It's a long name, and his very name is truth. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness. In Hebrew, that word is translated truth. Abounding in truth. I want you all to know I was a little, I had a little trepidation about dealing with the both sides of the aisle thing just now. But I know we have a room full of people hopefully that are aiming at being supra-political. You know what supra-political means. That doesn't mean super-political. That's two different things. Supra-political means that we are rising above politics. We're part of a kingdom that is eternal. And this is the king of our kingdom. And he identifies himself as truth itself. That is the lens through which we determine all other things. Our Lord revealed himself as glory to Moses, and he identified himself as truth itself. And then our Lord and Savior Jesus does the very same thing. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There it is. Grace and truth. How could He not reveal truth? Because He is God Himself. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. Listen to this passage. This is so good. I've asked Buddy to put this one on the screen. Were you able to put that up, Buddy? Good. Look at this. And we know. We, let me help you kind of connect the first little micro-sermon to this. We, those who are in the way, the way, know it. We know this, that the Son of God has come and has given understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Amen? Man, I'm thankful that we have a room full of people that can identify and enjoy that he is truth absolute. Let's go back to Pilate's question. What even is truth it was left unanswered it seems but actually it was answered in the remaining chapters of the book of John he said what even is truth in John chapter 19 it says so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull 
which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Pilate asks this question that seems like it goes unanswered. What even is truth? But it's actually answered in the cross. Our Lord himself, truth himself, displayed the abounding steadfast love and faithfulness, i.e. truth, of our God. It's a visual aid. He answered the question with the cross. He showed them he's full of grace and truth. He answered Pilate's question with the cross because truth bleeds. Truth died. It's not relative. It's not subject to interpretation. It is an absolute truth. All right, second micro-sermon done. Third micro-sermon on life. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to share a little passage. Uh, The first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 are a nice summary of the way apart from Christ. The way that leads to death. Okay, so kind of be thinking about that. If you can grab the little thought from our first sermon, micro-sermon, and bring it into the third. It's a nice little visual, but it's also a nice visual of something else. It's a visual of the thought that life apart from Christ is really not life at all. It's kind of a counterfeit life. Kind of a life with quotation marks around it. Okay, I'll show you. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, just grab that word and think about that word as dead, meaning dead. Dead. Like what it means, dead. Like you say it like with emphasis. Dead. I'm, we're not talking metaphor. Like you're like dead. Okay, dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked. Wait a minute. Walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here's what I want to bring out. Our Lord, through Paul here in Ephesians chapter 2, God reveals through Paul that apart from Christ, we are dead while walking. You are walking, dead while following, dead while following the prince of the power of the air, dead while working out the passage of the flesh. You're dead while walking, dead while following, dead while following the prince of the power of the air, dead while living, in verse 3, dead while carrying out the desires of the body and mind. The living dead. That's what this life, with quotation marks, around it really is it looks alive but it's really dead in her time the ship surpassed all other ships in luxury it was the picture of opulence the ship had an onboard swimming pool a gymnasium a turkish bath libraries in both first and second class and even a squash court oh you squash players. Man, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? I love me some squash. First-class common rooms were adorned with ornate wood paneling and expensive furniture. The Café Parisienne offered cuisine for the first-class passengers on a sunlit veranda. Hmm. 
The ship used some of the most advanced technology available in its time and was staffed by an experienced crew. But on the night of 14 April 1912, only four days into its maiden voyage, the RMS Titanic hit an iceberg and sank the very next morning. The supposedly unsinkable proved otherwise, and 1,517 people died. Imagine what those first four days and three nights must have been like. I mean, we've seen the movie, right? Leo, Kate, it's a good one, right? Man, they look all kind of alive, don't they? They're living the life. Wow, the dancing to the finest of music. Live quartets and orchestras, dining on the finest cuisine, sunning in the expansive decks, playing squash. Is there anything better? Chatting with friends, all the while not knowing the supposedly unsinkable was hours from resting on the ocean floor. That description of life on the Titanic in those days is so much for me, like that quote from Nisha. Meaning and morality of one's life comes from within oneself. Healthy, strong individuals see self-expansion by experimenting and by living dangerously. Life consists of an infinite number of possibilities, squash, cuisine, whatever. The healthy person explores as many of them as possible. It's like a visual of his quote. Compassion. A man made in God's image who got it so terribly wrong. Nisha, at the age of 44, suffered a collapse and afterward a complete loss of his mental faculties. Two police approached him after he caused a public disturbance on the streets of Turin. What happened next remains unknown, but an often repeated tale from shortly after his death states that Nisha witnessed the flogging of a horse at the other end of the Piazza Carlo Alberto, and he ran to the horse, threw his arms around the neck to protect it, and then collapsed to the ground. We don't know exactly how that went down, but this we know as a fact. In the following few days, he sent short writings known as delusion notes the Juan Zettel, to a number of his friends. Most of them were signed Dionysus. Some of them were signed Der Gekrutzitge. I had to practice that. It means the crucified one. That's tragic. He lived his remaining years in the care of his mother until her death in 1897, and then with his sister, Elizabeth. He died in the year 1900. Man, life apart from Christ is no life at all. What's so interesting is most commentators regard his breakdown as unrelated to his philosophy. Anybody else want to call baloney on that? Compassionate baloney. I'm going to call compassionate baloney on that. My daughter, Evan, who's read a lot of his stuff, she said, Nishi, this is the way she summarized Nisha. 
he was not a very happy person. What a tragic, tragic story. His life, and that ship, frankly, is a picture of life apart from Christ. The iceberg is hardening. The dance music is blaring. The cuisine is cooking, but death is imminent. There is, though, a way that leads to life. Amen. There is a way that leads to life. Unlike the short voyage on the Titanic, life with Christ is real and it's durable. (laughs) It's durable. His ship is filled with broken people. Populated with broken folks. Humbled by life in a fallen world. Blind and lame but made whole in Christ. Weak and frail and feeble, but steady and strong and durable in Christ. Man, that's, how, that's who's on board. His ship has gatherings of people, common folk, not listening to some band play over there and dancing, singing, maybe. But instead, we're singing and praising the true captain like we're going to do here in just a few minutes. Right? A ship full of folks. His ship has gatherings of folks feasting also, but not feasting on fine cuisine, feasting on the simple, broken body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's our meal. Huh. His ship is different from all others. His ship does not sink. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful, beautiful truth that you've given us this morning. The the wholeness, the truth, the direction, the life that we find in Christ. Lord, we are so thankful. Lord, we pray too this morning as we've considered other viewpoints and even another man that's gone. Lord, I pray this will compel us as men and women of sincerity, to speak in Christ, to share this good wholeness, this way that we found in Christ, this truth that we found in Christ in a world where everything is relative, and to do that compassionately and lovingly and boldly and faithfully. Lord, we are so thankful for life in Christ. We enjoy that this morning. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.